guys, good morning. I always mean this sincerely, but especially today, it is really so good to see you here this morning. We were gathered here with the, the band, you know, before and doing the sound check and all that kind of stuff going, well, prep for a worship service of 20. But uh, it, it's like, it, it's, it's, it's good, you're here, you brave the snow. Thank you for being a part of this today. This is the second to the last week of Explore God. For the last five weeks, we've been walking together with about 800 other churches in the Chicagoland area looking at these seven foundational questions of life, of Christianity, and of everything that our worldview here at Fellowship of Faith is based on. And for me, it's actually been something very enjoyable and edifying because even though these questions are maybe for some of us here basic or foundational, They're questions we have to come back to again and again because they're the structural pillars that hold up everything that for me is central and hold dear. And it's the answer to these questions that I find I need to revisit again and again. Last week, we dealt with a big one. It was a pivotal question. It was the question of, is Jesus really God? Or maybe to make it more open-ended, who is this guy really? Is he just a great moral teacher or prophet? Is he a failed revolutionary? Was he a cynic philosopher? Was he an Eastern mystic? Was he a fairy tale? Or was he something so much more? Was he who he actually claimed to be? And what the earliest written records about him Quote him as claiming to be. And if you were with us last week, we walked away seeing that the really the only options on the table were that he is who he claims to be, otherwise he was a madman, or the most wicked, horrible person of all because a liar, because no good moral person would say the things he said about himself and ask his followers to do the things he called them to do if it wasn't in fact true. But if you were with us last week, you'll notice that a lot of what we talked about, a lot of the evidence that we used to understand who is Jesus really, and to answer the question, is Jesus really God, was in fact based on the Bible. And so it really begs this question this week. Is the Bible reliable? If this is, in fact, the earliest written record of who Jesus is. And for us here at Fellowship of Faith, for me, the source, the the, the ultimate point by which my ideas of life and the universe and God and myself find their meaning and their structure and their source, you kind of want to know if you can trust the thing. And so it begs the question, is the Bible reliable? Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Now, today's movie day. Because anytime you have weather like this, this time of day, it needs to be movie day. Don't you agree? There's a number of clips that I'm going to show you today. Clips that are going to speak in to the reliability of the Bible far better than anything I could try to concoct here. 
And I'm going to kind of guide you through them and set them up. But then, after I show you some of that, I just want to share some quotes, some statements, some things that have been personally meaningful to me and my own personal feelings about the Bible as well. Now, I am fully aware having grown up with family and close friends who don't look at this book that you see me carrying up here every given Sunday. I'm fully aware that here in this congregation today, there's many of us who look at this thing and don't really see it as reliable at all or wonder, or wonder whether it is. For some of us, we see the Bible as something perhaps outdated, archaic, Irrelevant, maybe even naive. For others, I'd imagine we see it as superstitious, simple minded, a fairy tale. My bet is there's others of us here who view it even as something worse, something dangerous. Dangerous to a healthy psychology. Dangerous and a threat to healthy society. People's interaction with this book today and over the thousands of years that it's been in existence have been across the board. I shared a quote with you last week. I want to share it again today. It was according to a 2006 study done by professors of Harvard and George Mason University who polled college professors in the States on their belief in the Bible. And over half came away with this statement. It is an ancient book of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts. Fascinating that coming to a conclusion about this book that actually isn't what the book itself claims to be or what its followers have claimed it to be. But it's so easy for us in every generation to look at things of antiquity, texts of the past which sound different, are culturally different, which challenge our our modern-day worldview and see them as naive and simplistic. C.S. Lewis, that that great atheist-turned-Christian philosopher, has a great label for this. He calls it chronological snobbery. That every era thinks it is the most enlightened one and thinks of all previous eras as being, oh, So simple-minded like your five-year-old kid trying to explain something to you. More and more people today, I think, think of this book as something that is to be left over there, outside of society, outside of school, outside of work outside of life, that it's fine for those of us who want to interact with it personally behind closed doors when the curtains were drawn, just so we don't talk about it too much, right? But that it no longer has a meaningful place or should in the public sphere or any kind of reasonable human interaction. I want to show you a video, though, today to turn that idea on its head and show you that truly in this world, 
That assumption that's so often made just simply isn't the case. So Tony, I'm going to hand it over to you, and if you'd like to cue it up. the French philosopher Voltaire predicted that the Bible would become a museum piece within a hundred years of his lifetime and replaced by more advanced philosophies. But today, the Bible remains the most popular book in the world, the most successful literary creation of all time. Each year, over 100 million Bibles are sold or given away. The YouVersion Bible app has been downloaded over 200 million times. The Bible is the best-selling book of the year every year. In fact, it's so popular that it's excluded from weekly bestseller lists. The Bible would be the top seller every single week, week in, week out. Many people would say that the Bible is the most popular book of all time because it's also the most powerful. It has the power to change individuals and to change societies. On her coronation day, the Queen of England was handed a Bible with the words, we present you with this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. The Bible is incredibly precious. The writer of the Psalms describes the Bible as being more precious than gold. In fact, it's so precious that some have even risked their lives to share it with others. Whatever you might assume or be led to believe, the facts are that this book permeates the world. This book continues to be something that people seek and struggle with, read and suffer for, find meaning and hope in, conform their lives by to the point of death that this book continues to be something viewed as so valuable, not just by a pocket few, not just by an arcane sect but by billions of people in this century and for centuries past. No, this is not a book, as Voltaire said, that has become relegated to a museum piece, but something that continues to capture the minds and the hearts and the imaginations. And I want to speak to those of you here today who might feel like you're alone in your view of this book. That the world has rejected it, and you stand alone as one of the few, a remnant, still holding to it beyond a fool's hope that maybe it could just be true. I want to encourage you today that billions and billions and billions of people in history and on this day are part of that remnant with you. I want to speak to those of you today who scoff at it, who laugh at it, who relegate it to the irrelevant and, and quickly push it aside as just some arcane religious text. My encouragement to you today is simply this, to consider it again, anew. Not just what people say about it, not just a few isolated texts that are used to try to 
demolish it, but to interface with it yourself and see for yourself what it holds for you. But you know, back to the question. Because the question wasn't, is it popular? There is no doubt about that. It certainly is. The question is, is it reliable? Because popularity and reliability are not the same thing. Are you with me? The Hobbit is a very popular book. It does not mean that I think its view of Middle Earth is reality. And so the question still remains, not do people love it, not do people want it, but can I trust it? Is this book reliable? Can I trust that what I hold in my hands, when I put through these pages, is actually what was written? Can I trust that I have reliable record of what was actually said, or has it become diluted, watered down, edited, changed? Has it become morphed and warped and twisted? Like some kind of crazy three-millennia telephone game from what these people originally had to say. I have one more video that I'd like to share with you today that I think speaks so clearly into this. Tony, roll it. Jesus of Nazareth is believed to have walked these streets around 2,000 years ago. But is there any evidence that he even existed? Well, there's actually quite a lot of evidence. No serious historian would deny that Jesus existed. The Roman historians Tacitus and Suetonius wrote about Jesus, as did the first century Jewish historian Josephus. He described him as Jesus, a doer of wonderful works. And then he goes on to describe his crucifixion and alleged resurrection. So there's evidence outside of the New Testament for the existence of Jesus, but most of the evidence comes from inside the New Testament. And sometimes people say, well, the New Testament was written such a long time ago. How do we know what was written down hasn't been changed over the years? Well, the answer is that we do know because of a science called textual criticism. Textual criticism examines the number of copies of early texts that we have available to us today. And it looks at the time gap between the original document and the earliest copy that we have. And basically, the more manuscripts we have and the earlier they are, the less doubt there's going to be about the original. So let's compare the Bible to other texts in ancient history, ones that are widely used in schools and universities. Let's look at the Greek historians Herodotus and Thucydides. They both wrote in the 5th century BC. But the earliest copy of their writings that we have dates from AD 900, and that makes a 1,300-year time lapse. And even then, we only have eight copies of these manuscripts in the first place. Or look at the Roman historian Tacitus. There's a 1,000-year gap between his book being written and our first manuscript, and we only have 20 copies. Or another classic, Caesar's Gallic War, 950 years between the book being written and our first manuscript copy. And even then, we only have nine or ten copies of these manuscripts. Again, with Livy's famous History of Rome, a 900-year gap between the book being written and our first manuscript, and we only have 20 copies of this. 
But when it comes to the New Testament, well, it's very different. The New Testament was written between about 40 and 100 AD, and we have manuscript evidence going back as early as 130 AD, and full manuscripts by 350 AD. And we have more than 5,300 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin translations, and 9,300 others. So, you know, we can be pretty confident in the accuracy, the authenticity, and the integrity of the New Testament scriptures that have been passed down to us today. The remarkable thing about the Bible is there's such a short chronological distance between the events being described and our first manuscripts. So in many ways, the Bible scholars are in a very fortunate position of being able to check these things out and finding that they are much more reliable than, for example, some of the alternatives you're looking at. And as a scholar, I am more than happy to say, I trust this, I take it very, very seriously, I rely on it. Professor F.J.A. Hort, one of the greatest scholars in the area of textual criticism, concluded that, in the variety and fullness of the evidence on which it rests, the text of the New Testament stands absolutely and unapproachably alone amongst ancient prose writings, and no secular historian would disagree with that conclusion. It's interesting to me. <clears throat> when it comes to the history in ancient antiquity, if we are to believe anything about the ancient past, the message of the Bible contains more accuracy, more validity, more testimony than anything else we know before our modern world. From the time gap that things were written to the volume of congruent manuscripts, it's how I remember a time in my life when I was so shaken by this question. See, I'd been brought up on this thing. I cut my teeth on it and for many years just took it for granted. But there comes that time in life, and I think it comes for all of us, at one time or another, when our easy assumptions about life and the way that we see the, the world and the things that we hold dear, we start to question, we start to challenge. And I want to encourage you, if you're in that place, that not only is it normal, but it's welcome. And it's good. It is nothing to fear. Even if in the midst it feels fearful as you wonder if everything you've believed and hold dear is true. I remember a time in my life wrestling with this question and coming again and again to the place that if I am to trust anything of the past, I have to start here because there is more history and testimony and to this than anything else in antiquity. The question, is the Bible reliable, is valid. It's a question that needs to be asked. If we are to base our beliefs and worldview on something, I mean, are you with me on this? We better make sure that it's actually true. But I want you to go a step further with me now. 
Because as valid as the question is, I think it ultimately misses the point. See, to ask if the Bible is reliable and then spend all your energy on that question, trying to answer it as though that is the end game, finding whether it is a yes or no, while helpful, is misguided. It's a lot like dissecting a puppy. You buy your kid a puppy, and you buy your kid a puppy to love it. You don't buy your kid a puppy to take it apart and see how it works. And sometimes I fear that the debate over the Bible has switched to this question of whether it is reliable so much that on both sides of the debate, we've ultimately missed the point. That we've become like scientists who methodically stand above it, over it, scrutinizing it, analyzing it, picking it apart to answer our small-minded questions instead of embracing it for what it wants to be and challenging our small-mindedness. I want to read you a quote today. It comes from a pastor who's been very influential to me. A church that he started on this view of the Bible. He writes, We actually believe that the biblical text is a living and breathing word. For the first year or so of our existence as a church, I preached through the book of Leviticus, verse by verse. Yeah, that's right. Menstrual blood, goat sacrifice, and no shellfish, please. Every verse. Now, if you at this moment are smiling or laughing or thinking that's crazy, what have you just said about the biblical text? Do you have a canon within a canon? Either you believe that God speaks through his entire text or you stick within the evangelically approved texts that are tamed down enough for the local congregation. We have no desire to tame the text. We want to let it out of its cage, and we want to see it prowl around our lives, devouring us and spitting out the bones. We don't want to be detached, methodical scientists who stand over the subject and apply the proper rules, methods, and principles so that we can achieve favorable results. The modern impulse is always to reduce it to simple principles and clever maxims to continually insist that with enough work, it will all make sense and all line up. Life doesn't always line up. We love the scriptures, and we want them to sweep us off our feet. In the new world, much of what is currently considered preaching and study will be rendered totally irrelevant. The Bible is not a nice book. It is not a clean book. It is not a guide to proper behavior. It does not even seem to care whether it is relevant or not. I have asked the congregation to please never tell me that my message was nice. The Bible is a revolutionary manifesto that could get you killed in many parts of the world. It is living. It is breathing. And it demands that we surrender to it unconditionally so that it can transform us. 
This is what the Bible is. And when we treat it as something to prove, as valid as those questions are, we risk missing the point of what it actually is and what it will do. Like a puppy, the Bible will challenge you. It will frustrate you. It will infuriate you. It will love you. You'll think you have it trained. And only when you get cocky, you'll discover it has a mind of its own and does not conform to your will. It will chew up the furniture of your spiritual house and yet submit to you and come back to you again and again. No, to dissect the Bible is to take the wrong approach. It is something that's supposed to be approached in some different way. And if you let it, It'll twist you. It'll turn you. It'll suck your eyeballs to the back of your head. And just when you think you've got nothing left, it'll push harder and faster and take you off your feet because that's what the word of God does. Because that's what the Bible is. The famous songwriter Rich Mullins He has this quote that the first time I heard, it's like, you have these? Like, I'm writing this one down. Let me share it with you today. The Bible is not a book for the faint of heart. It is a book full of all the greed and glory and violence and tenderness and sex and betrayal that benefits mankind. It is not the collection of pretty little anecdotes mouthed by pious little church mice. It does not so much nibble at our shoe as it cuts to the heart and splits the marrow from bone to bone. It does not give us answers fitted to our smaller-minded questions, but truth that goes beyond what we even know to ask. Or as the writer to the Hebrews once put it in more succinct form, it is living, it is active, it is the word of God itself, sharper than any double-edged sword it penetrates to dividing soul and spirit joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Guys, this is what the Bible is. This is what the Bible seeks to do. This is how it calls us to interact. But frankly, a lot of us just aren't there. Frankly, for a lot of us, it remains a closed book that sits on the shelf, frankly, for many of us. It's something that even when we try to interact with, our mind is a million miles away as we dredge through the boredom of having to read the pages off the text, wondering about what's on TV, thinking about what's on my to-do list. We've all been there, haven't we? Frankly, so many of us just aren't there. And I think the reason why is because, frankly, so many of us just aren't desperate for God. And until you're desperate for God and what he has to say, and I mean desperate, the book remains a think piece, an heirloom, an artifact, something that stays fairly closed, even if not in binding in our soul. 
I remember when it first took hold of me. I think I can arguably say it was my senior year of high school. You got to understand, I grew up in a strongly devout Christian home where the Bible was loved and cherished and known. I grew up going to church in school, Sunday school, every single Sunday, both, back to back. I was one of those kids who went to a Christian school, at least K through 8, and they would take church attendance on Monday. And I was like one of those freaks that they're like, church or Sunday school, and every week it was like, both, both, both. I had the stories of this book crammed in my head to the point that I was sick of them. I was bored with them. The book had remained closed to me. Despite the fact it was open so much in my midst, it really wasn't until my senior year that things changed. Up to that point, I remember in high school having crammed in my head the importance of having your quiet time and your daily devotional. I know I'm saying it mockingly, but it really isn't a good thing to do. (laughs) Having it crammed in my head that I need to be daily reading this thing. So, you know, I don't know how you are, but do you have voices in your head? Like, and do you have the guilty voices in your head? Dad? Mom? Grandma? Now, John, you really need to be reading the Bible. You know what I mean, right? Have you found those people can be dead for like 40 years and their voices are still with you? Yes, we are all crazy. And I remember those voices in my head, and I'd want to go to bed at night. I'd want to watch TV and fall asleep to TV. I didn't read the Bible today so dutifully. and You drag yourself through. You try to read a chapter so at least you can check off your to-do. I remember for so much of my life, what I would just read over and over again is Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Because at least there was blood. (laughs) At least there was war. At least people were fighting each other and sexual intrigue and and betrayal and conspiracy. I could get down with things like that. But it really wasn't until my senior year that things started to happen in me where I thought that I had lost God forever. And it was the first time that I really experienced desperation for him, thinking I had lost him and realizing I had lost everything that I had taken for granted as a result. I remember how what I would call now, in retrospect, not realizing it at the time, of course, the Spirit of God taking a hold of me, driving me to these words with new eyes. Reading this book that I had seen for a thousand times. For the first time ever. And I remember every word and sentence started to become something I would say. It started to stick. Because when you love something and want something, you remember it. And I remember it getting into my soul and turning me on my head and realizing what God had to say to me, to me. That this was not just some book to put on the shelf next to every other 
in the general place of equality. No, there was something here that was living and breathing, and it was sharp. And it was penetrating the deepest parts of my psyche. That's what this book is. And I'll be straight, that can be scary. It can be frightening for something to come into you and strike you and pierce you in that kind of way because it messes everything up. But to the question, is it reliable? May I simply answer, you can trust it. That not only is it true, but it's good. And though it'll change everything for you, it will ultimately do it for the better. Oh yeah, this book, this book is reliable. But to that question, this book is something so much more. And that's my hope for you. My hope for you is that you don't give up on it. That you stick at it even if you're in a time of non-desperation for God today. Even if you come here with doubt and skepticism or even contempt today. That you allow the puppy in your home to make a mess of things and just see what happens in the end game. That's a little bit how I would answer that question and what the Bible means to me. That's it. This is week six. We have one more week to go. Will you rise and just confess your sins to God with me? Let's pray. Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We justly deserve your present and eternal punishment. But for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us, forgive us, renew us, and lead us so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Listen to what the Bible has to say, not me, me quoting it. If you're here today and you say you have no sin, you deceive yourselves and the truth is not in you. But if you confess your sins, which you just have, God is faithful. God is just. And he forgives you all your sins and cleanses you from all unrighteousness. It's not my words. It's from this. Dare to believe it. 
Listen to what the Bible says. On the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples, his followers. And he told them, take and eat because this is my body and I'm giving it to you. Come do this. Remember me. This is what the Bible says. After that, after the supper, after they ate together, he took a cup and he gave thanks to God and he gave it to them. And he said, drink of this, all of you. This is my blood. I shed it for you. For the forgiveness of all of your sins. Do this. Remember me. It's not what I say. It's what this says. Dare to believe it. Welcome to the table of the Lord.